Hey folks, welcome back to the DC Three Cast. My name is Brian. With me, as always, are Vince and and just Vince. <laughs> Look at me. I am I am so in the in the habit of saying Vince and Zach. And uh, Zach, this is the first week of Zach's paternity leave. As of right now, uh, there is no Baby Wilkerson, but I'm sure Baby Wilkerson is, you know, anxiously awaiting its arrival. Um, and uh, so yeah, Vince and I are here tonight to go through two weeks of comics, uh, the week of. Um, April 7th and April 14th. So, uh, or I guess April 6th and 13th because DC releases a day early. Anyway, Vincey, how are you? Shitty. Well, sorry to hear that. I wish I, I wish I could say I was any different, but here we are. So, uh, we're going to start, uh, of course, in alphabetical order with uh, Batman number 107, written by James Tynan IV, illustrated by Jorge Jimenez. Uh, this is continuing the Scarecrow story that was introduced last month. And um, I think that, that Tanyan and Jimenez have done a really good job in quickly establishing what the sort of new Batman... And I, I don't mean Batman in terms of the character. I mean the, sort of the um, the title the new Batman status quo is this book looks and feels very different than it did before infinite frontier began. And it also, I think looks and feels different than almost any other book set in Gotham right now. Uh, what did you think of this issue? Vincy? I mean, this book is still good. I, I think, I think, uh, uh, the Jimenez art in particular is, I just love it. I love the, I love the, it, 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 it takes a tiny story, which is kind of, kind of all over the place. I don't mean that as a criticism because I think he's doing a fantastic job of, of balancing all these elements. Um, like he's just got a lot going on, but I think like Jimenez just weaves it all together in this really strong visual continuity um, that like, like it, like he's really taken Batman and Gotham city and made it his own. Like, I almost don't remember what it looks like any other way. <laughs> it's kind of weird to say that, but um, uh, it's just, it, it rocks. It's, it's, uh, I'm still loving it. Well, one of the really interesting things that he's done in this uh, in these first two issues is he is really using this title as the flagship for the Gotham status quo. So in this issue, we get a little bit of Oracle, we get a little bit of Harley Quinn, we get a little bit of Renee Montoya. We just we get a really uh, we get a really sort of well-rounded sense of what it's like in Gotham right now. And I think that because he is making it so interconnected, it's easy to, like you said, kind of just accept this as this is what Gotham is. And it's, it, I don't know if I'd say it's hard to remember what it was like before, but it certainly feels like a complete, well-drawn, well-considered status quo right now. 
Mm-hmm. I can't remember a time when Gotham was this interconnected. Can you? Yeah, I'm the the Morrison era, I think. And, and I mean, and that wasn't even well. That stuff wasn't even so much connected to Morrison's book itself, but like everything else. Yes, the, the all, Mor- all the other books were connected. Yes, the Morrison book kind of set aside from all of that, and everything else felt like it was working in concert. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and I think that ultimately, that might be how de- how detective looks six months down the road, just because that seems to be the book that Tynion is least involved with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we've only had one issue of that in this new status quo, so I don't want to necessarily speak of that too much. But you know, this this week certainly touches on things that we're going to see in the Joker. It touches on things we're going to see in the Harley Quinn title. It's it's a really well laid out, interconnected story. Uh, we also get Matches Malone here, <laughs> which uh, calling himself Match. Yeah, and... that was weird. I, I was like, why is he calling himself Match? Like, instead of Matches. It felt like a very weird choice. I, I, th- I think this is supposed to be not your father's Matches Malone. You know, okay. he's hit the uh, new for the for the young generation. So, so he thought of something so uh, clever that it was just dropping the uh, es from the end of. The... This is this is him going from New Kids on the Block to NKOTB. Oh Jesus! Okay. Uh... Um, but Jimenez's art here is great. Uh, I really like the visuals of the Scarecrow. In this, I, I think that it is both instantly recognizable as the Scarecrow, but also unlike any design for the character we've ever really seen before, mm-hmm. it's it's really, really well done. Jimenez is working on some next-level shit here. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We also get in this issue the first installment of the Ghostmaker backup. Um <laughs> And that is written by James Tynion IV, illustrated by Ricardo Lopez Ortiz. And this is a super fun backup. Uh, the Ghostmaker is basically like uh, an Lothario in the sky, and um, and and there's there's this interesting character, Madame Midas, who is the wealthiest woman on Earth, and she is setting a trap for Ghostmaker using all of these sort of b-level villains as bait um i had a lot of fun with this i thought that the artwork by uh ortiz was fantastic that's an artist i'm not super familiar with and i i thought that the work was just incredible really fun and dynamic and this um doesn't look at all like what's happening in the main title but there's sort of a, a kinetic energy that translates between both of them uh, even though they're quite different. What did you think of this backup? Yeah, I, I, I loved it. Um, the Ricardo Lopez Ortiz art was a mini revelation, I think. It, it was so, like, manga-esque and, um, and, and fun in that way. Um, I, did, did you, have you, you, you probably haven't, because I know that you're, your back backlog is piled up, but have you seen the Peach Momoko um, uh, X book 
that came out a few weeks ago. I I flipped through it. I did not like sit and read it, but I flipped through it. Yeah, it rem it, it reminded me of this. I loved them both, and, and uh, they really like shared an energy. This like this like shonen manga energy <laughs> to them, and uh, so so um, yeah, I I loved it on that level. I was a little uh, at the beginning. I was like, "Oh God, I'm I'm this backup is gonna make me not like Ghostmaker," just because like in in the beginning he kind of comes off as this like edge lord. I think mm -hmm. a little bit like like oh yeah, here he is. Not that I have anything against uh, threesomes, you know, <laughs> in theory, but like oh yeah, uh, just to show how yeah. badass he is, he he has to talk about how he's really good at a threesome, you know, and uh, it it just it just felt like for a second like a shortcut to, to him being this like edgy, but that that really gets smoothed out as this goes on, and and you just like you take it for what it is, which is just this fun romp. And, uh, and yeah, that, that, that really smoothed out quickly and, uh, found, I found myself liking Ghostmaker, um, uh, despite my favorite, everything. So my favorite visual in this issue is that, um, much like the, uh, the couple played by Will Ferrell and Rachel Dratch on SNL, um, the, the, like, uh, the professor, you know, the hot tub, couple oh like, the lovers the lovers yes much like them there is just like a full-on cooked turkey next to the bed <laughs> waiting for them to just dig into post-coitus and uh it's it's fantastic our skin glistening from yes. the oily goat meat exactly exactly yeah. a little, little bit of that a little bit of that sugar just you know sprinkled on top here but yeah, yeah uh, ghost maker is a character that i thought i would not care about at all when he was first introduced, and I'm really enjoying what Tiny is doing with him in the Bat Book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's good shit. Yeah, for sure. Um, I also liked this mini not Suicide Squad team that Midas has, and I mm -hmm. and I they, they just reminded me of the Suicide Squad because like all of their names and profiles reminded me of like when <laughs> yes. when a when a writer creates Suicide Squad characters that are clearly meant to die immediately. Right, it, it's it's not Killer Croc. It's like Grinning Gator, but, right? It's like it's the, like the, the Instigator. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's a character that's just like right there. So yeah, and uh, and you know, in in honor of Zach, if Zach were here, he would say that this comic is good because it's um, comics becoming manga, and it's American comics becoming manga, and uh, we all know that that automatically makes a comic good. So yes, yes. Um, the one thing I forgot to mention from the, the first part I just want to bring up here, I loved Batman fucking with Montoya, where he basically says to her, like, oh, you got your badge back. Don't forget to ask the right question. And then he throws mm, a smoke yeah. it. Like, it's just, it's a nice knowing wink to their history. It doesn't, um, it doesn't read out of character. It just reads, it, it was a very nice moment. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that was great. Anything else to say um, about this issue? Yeah, just one more thing at the at the very end of the go. So I'll see if you I'll see if you get this reference because you're 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 an old right. So fuck off. Um, <laughs> do did you ever play the Mega Man games back in back on the NES? I did, but I I have to say my um 
my like knowledge of the characters and the story are not what they probably should be for the amount of time I played Mega Man. Sure, yeah, that's fine. Well, they were the stories were incredibly thin anyway, but um, the the reason I bring it up is because there, there's these ro- robotic tigers at the end of the Ghost Maker backup, mm-hmm. and they are like straight out of uh, a Mega Man level. There's a Mega Man level, and I think it was Napalm Man in Mega Man four or five, one of the later ones, I think. And there was like a sub boss in one of the levels. And it was these like big robot tigers that would bounce balls at you. Okay. And uh, yeah, the designs were like straight out of, it reminded me so much of the, the, the robotic Dr. Wily uh, robot tigers. So, so I, I thought that was neat. This, yeah, this thing was, that. yeah, it was, it was after my heart for sure. It's just super fun. Mm-hmm. Just a, a super, super fun backup. Um, all right, well, let, let's hop over to Crime Syndicate number two, written by Andy Schmidt and illustrated by Kieran McEwen. I don't have a ton to say about this. I didn't have a ton to say about the first issue of this. I have probably less to say about this. I thought this issue was better than the first issue was in terms of uh, it didn't need to waste as much time sort of winking and nodding to make sure that we understand we're on a different earth and you know things like the benedict arnold memorial all that i mean some of the stuff gets referenced here but it's not as overt and heavy-handed as it was in the first issue um but i i just i i can't help to get myself i can't get myself too interested in this title right now um i know you were higher on the first issue than either zach or i were so do you continue to be enjoying this or uh did it fall a bit for you? Um I enjoy it, but it's very thin. It's 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 hanging on by a thread with me. Even 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 enjoying it for what it is. Um I think this issue spent a little too much time like there, there's a, there's a weird amount of time spent in this issue, like explaining to the reader what Starro does. When yes. when like okay, we we've all we all know what Starro does, I think. And even if even if they're trying to explain it to first time readers, like there's a scene kind of towards the beginning of the issue where uh, Thomas and I think Al- his Alfred are. Uh, investigating in the Batcave or whatever. And, and somewhere along the way, he explains what Starro is doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And then later again, like towards the end of the issue, I think it's like John Stewart or somebody is like explaining again, like the Starros are t- the, and it takes up like an inordinate <laughs> amount of panel time explaining that the Starros have everybody under their control. And I just think like, even if you don't know what Starro is, it takes a line to explain that. And anybody who's ever read like fantasy or science fiction understands the concept. You know, <laughs> what's the name of the flower? I'm gonna mess it up now. From that from that Superman story where the flower, the black Black Mercy, Black Mercy. Thank you. Starro kind of acts like a black. Like usually, Starro goes over the face. Of the characters, uh-huh. but here it goes over the heart, kind of like a Black Mercy does. So I feel like, again, it's not that hard to figure out what's going on here. Your point right. is well taken. There's just it's if you've if you had any sort of 
cursory interest in comic booking, you know what's happening here. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they just keep going back to that well for some reason. Um, on the other hand, like, I, I do think it, it's a legitimately fun and funny book in kind of a dad jokey way. Like, I think, like, there's two or three jokes that I chuckled at. But then in hindsight, I was like, well, that's that's just a dad joke. But I can't I can't like be mad at it. Um, I can't think of anything specifically off the top of my head right now. But like the, the humor is not all that clever. Um, but it's a different wavelength than we're used to getting from from the books that we read every week. And so I think like on that level, I can kind of appreciate it. Um but it's yeah, it's hanging on by a thread. And the backup the, the backup this month, I kinda liked the um Ultraman backup from the first issue. This one kinda sucked, I thought. At least that Ultraman one had the the All Star Superman um kind of parody page, you know? Mm-hmm. This one is just like Edgelord Thomas Wayne retelling of the of the not Batman Bruce Wayne origin. Right. right. And it, it really, it really didn't work for me. <laughs> I, I just don't understand why the backups are there. I, to me, like the, the whole idea of doing a crime syndicate book, it's predicated on the idea that you know that these characters are the opposite of the justice league, right? Like they are, they are the, the converse of the justice league characters. So if you're going to do backups based on those characters, you have to give us something more than just the knowledge that these are the opposites because we already know that. And there's yeah. nothing in this backup that gives you any sort of additional information other than what you already knew going into it. And there's just no reason for that. Yeah. And Brian Hitch's art is fine. Brian Hitch is a, is a good artist. He's a good draftsman. But nothing about his art particularly excited me here. No, no, I agree with that too. Like even that, the Ultraman one was was way better on that level too, for sure. All right, well, let's move on to a book I know we have a lot more to say about, and that is Green Lantern number one, written oh, by Jeffrey baby. Thorne, uh, illustrated by Dexter Soy. Uh, for those that listen to our uh, top ten show last week you will know that all three of us were quite high on this title and a friend of the show past and future guest walter richardson reached out to me after hearing our episode and reading this issue and said like huh the issue was good but you guys made it sound like it was better than it was and uh, first of all, I disagree with Walt, but yeah. What do you mean, future guest of the show? I, I think that's very much up in the air now. That, that's true. Um, but you know, his point was that he felt it was that there were a lot of good ideas, but he didn't feel like the execution was really there. I disagree with that. I think that this is the most unique Lantern book we've got in. Gosh, 10 years, maybe, maybe more in terms of just taking some new approaches and new ideas. This doesn't feel like really anything we've seen for a while. 
yet it doesn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We get some interesting stuff with the other lantern cores. We get some like true cosmic stuff. So many times the Green Lantern books, despite taking place in space, don't feel like they're touching on a lot of the cosmic DC stuff. Whereas this is clearly connected to, you know, Thanagar, to the United Planets from Legion of Superheroes and from the Superman run. Like there's there's a lot of stuff in here that mm-hmm. feels really interconnected and feels really important to sort of the grander scheme of the cosmic DC universe. And yet this doesn't suffer from a lack of plot nor does it suffer from being sort of overstuffed and uh, and undercooked, at least not to me. To me, this seems to introduce just like seemingly dozens of ideas that we know eventually, hopefully, will be dealt with and will be addressed here. But even if some of these things never get fully... Um, you know, worked out into their own stories, there's enough interest and new ideas here to just give me the happy feels while reading this. What did you think of this issue? I mean, I totally agree with you. I I guess I can kind of see what Walter is saying if I consider that, like, there are so many ideas here that, and we kind of discussed this in our top 10 issue, but, like, there's so many ideas here, but nothing that gives you an indication of which ideas you can be confident are actually going to manifest right. into something. I don't think that's really a criticism. That's not a criticism. It's just a it's just a caution. It's a thing I'm thinking about as I'm reading this, where I go like, like Zach he's not here so I can say this, but like he jumped the gun in that episode by saying like, this is better than any of the John stuff. Right. right. <laughs> I think he said that, you know, and uh, first of all, it's one issue, you know, if I'm thinking about it in that context, yeah, there are things in here where I, where I think like, okay, well they could not, he cannot possibly juggle all this great stuff. He cannot keep the energy of this one issue going, you know, Mm-hmm. And and maybe that's unfair. That's not unfair to this issue, which I think is wonderful, um, because I'm not criticizing this issue. I'm just thinking about where the run could be going, and I'm trying to caution myself from thinking it's 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 always going to be this good, um, because there's so much here, and I it, it can be like overwhelming. I think a little. I, I had to read this a couple times to really appreciate some of the some of the minor story beats. Um, but, but I loved it. I mean, I, I hope it comes as close to this going forward as it, as it can, because there's so much here that I've been waiting for a lantern book to do again, that I feel like it hasn't done in a long time. And, um, the, the, the run that I've read and I've not read, I've only read a little bit. I've read some of the stuff that's tied into events and whatnot, but mm-hmm. Engelhart's Green Lantern Corps stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. It re- that's what this reminded me of more than anything else, because in that uh, book, the core actually felt like they were a part of the sector that they policed. Um, they would go to Earth, you know, 
the different members of the core would mingle with one another and with earthlings. The guardians were very involved, but I feel like in John's uh, run and in, in the, in the runs that would follow John's, the guardians were very much always this aloof to the point of being like very annoying. Um, as if they weren't even speaking the same language as the core, like that's, that's how distanced they were um, philosophically. And I feel like this does a good job of, of again, bringing them kind of down to the core level with uh, there's, I mean, there's scenes where, where John Stewart walks among them and, you know, they say like, you've been a guardian. Um, you're our bridge to the green, excuse me. I got the hiccups. You're our, uh, you're our bridge to the green lantern core. And I feel like that's a really strong character thing to build on. I feel like if you, we've spent enough time with the, with the guardians being this aloof force of, you know, that, that tends to meddle with what's going on. You know, um, I would love to see them more integrated again. Um, kind of ground them a little bit back on earth, if not literally just like figuratively, you know, by making them part of this United planets, you know, they feel more like a part of something rather than, um, rather than this, uh, segregated policing unit, you know? Um, I think that was another thing about John's run that like, like, uh, John's run got stale. Definitely. You know, I, one criticism I often had was that every arc felt like it was just another war in space, just another like war of the lanterns in space, you know? Yeah. Every, every arc was trying to be that same thing, only explaining why this time it's even a little bit worse, you know? Um, I hope there's more variation in this run. I feel like there already is. There's already the promise, like you said, the Thanagarians, the United Planets. There's the promise that, that, you know, different lanterns are going to be in different uh, crux worlds or whatever. And maybe we'll get to see a little bit of that. Um, maybe we'll get to see them on earth a little more. I, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm babbling, but I, I really uh, loved how old school this felt, but I, I don't mean that in any pejorative way. Just like it was just, Back to basics, Green Lantern core from a feel perspective, while having like the most modern iterations of these characters that we've, you know, it's back to basics, but it's still Simon, John Stewart, Teen Lantern, you know, like you're not sacrificing anything. Right. To go back to basics. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things I, I wanted to make sure that we touch on here. So we, we referenced this in the top 10 episode, which we called this the, the sort of Trinity problem. And uh, that's a reference to when we did our first top 10 of uh, the Rebirth era. It was right after Trinity number one came out. And we all put it super high up on our list. And the reason was because that first issue dealt a lot with the interpersonal friendships between Clark, Diana, and Bruce. And the three of us just kept going gaga over this idea of, like, it's been so long since they cared about each other. If this book is more of that, we're going to be eating this up. And then the book was no more of that at all. <laughs> yeah. Like, that was the last time that any of those <laughs> sentiments were expressed. Um, 
And so my fear with this book is that the sort of, <coughs> excuse me, the sort of like widescreen. Yes, COVID. I do have COVID, yes. Uh, I'm technically not contagious anymore, but this cough won't go away. Um, the, um, you know, like, I, I don't know if every issue or any other issue will be able to pull off the sort of widescreen approach to cosmic DC that I was loving so much here. But based on the first issue, if, if that's one of the goals of the run, that is, that is music to my ears. That's, that's just fantastic. But even if that's not necessarily going to be the focus of the run, I think just showing John, Kyle, Guy, Hal, Simon, Jessica, uh, Kilowog, and what, what is Teen Lantern's first name? I, I'm blanking on it off the top of my head. Ke Kelly. Kelly, yes. Um, and possibly Joe from Far Sector. We know that she is coming eventually to the book too. Like just showing all of these characters as having their own thing going on. Like that's one of the problems I have found with Green Lantern core books in the past versus Green Lantern books is oftentimes, especially during the Johns era, it felt like these characters, their main trait was that they were Green Lanterns. There was a lot of the sort of secondary and tertiary Lanterns never were given too much personality. They were just, I'm the Green Lantern from this planet, and that's my motivation. And so like seeing Hal's role and John's role here knowing that um knowing that we're going to be getting more with those characters hopefully in the future the it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like you're just like thorn is just wasting not wasting it doesn't seem like he's just putting these characters in these situations in order to explain why they're not in this book it seems like he is seeding things for future arcs and future issues and that's yeah. really exciting or even uh, just to interject here, even like hopefully other writers like not because I don't not because I don't want him writing the characters, but because I hope that there's more books coming out of this. That was I don't, my I don't, I don't think point. there will be. But. Well, that was my second point when we were talking. When we started talking about this is I feel like this is setting up really, really nicely for a second or third if not a lantern book at least a cosmic book in dc mm -hmm. like that is one of the things that i think both dc and marvel go through phases of having cosmic books but then there's long stretches where there's almost nothing that is predominantly set in space and aside from a green lantern book what was the last ongoing to have a real space component at dc justice league odyssey <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess that's, i guess that's true um, but that book was a mess so right. like i mean what was the what was the last unequivocally good one? Oh god i mean i don't even know yeah you know so just just having just just having the possibility of more cosmic books more lantern books more chances to explore the different lanterns that we do have on display here. And also I just want to, I want to toss a little bit of love at Dexter soy here. Um, 
I, I, I particularly like Dexter Soy back to his time doing Captain Marvel with Kelly Sue DeConnick at, at Marvel. Um, but I think that one of the nicest things about Soy's art is that he is able to, um, <clears throat> when he does things set in space, he really makes it a point to give each alien species their own look, but to not make those looks work against each other. Like his space, his his Oa hosting the United Planets, all those characters, all those species look unique, but they all look like they come from the same universe, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. he's he's able to give them some sort of connective visual tissue without just um, making everybody look the same. I thought I, I think his designs are pretty inventive. I loved things like I loved the Kryptonian formal wear that yes. John Stewart was wearing. Love that. I, I thought that a lot of the book visually was understated and really smartly designed and uh, I'm excited to see what what he does going forward on this book mm-hmm <clears throat> absolutely yeah th- this book looked great that was the other thing like as as packed full of man I feel like I feel like that's the story with um infinite frontier almost every book is just packed full of stuff we've been talking about how um how much longer it's been taking us to to read and absorb these individual issues than like say pre-infinite frontier uh dc comics and i think like there's just a a, a loving sense of construction and detail in the the storytelling and the art that i feel like not that these are not decompressed comics, but they're they're there's something going on. They're they're definitely packing more in from issue to issue. Um, it's it's kind of crazy to me. And yeah, the the per, these books are more expensive, and and some of them are longer, and some of them have backups. Um, they probably are still too expensive. Um, like I think I saw that the next issue of the joke, like the Joker issue two is like $6 or something. And it's like 40 pages. It's probably still too expensive, but you know, they're, they're giving us a lot here compared to, I'm not sound like I'm shilling for DC right now. I'm really Why not. Stop I'm, now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm really not trying to, but I, but I, I do think it is true that like there is a concerted effort to, to pack more stuff into these books. And I, I do appreciate it. Um, yes. did you go ahead? Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 I was going to say, I was going to say, did you notice where Kyle is right now? I, I forget offhand. Where is he right now? He's in the Vega system, which ooh, is ooh. O- Omega man. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of exciting. I, I I would like to see the Omega Man show up again. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say, um, and now it's totally out of my head. Shit. Oh, sorry. No, that's I'm sorry. Okay. That's okay. It'll come back to me in a second. Um, we're talking about Kyle. Oh, oh. Um, son of a bitch bastard. Um, I'm looking through my notes and nothing is coming out. Um. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Yes, okay. So I was going to say, what makes this even more remarkable to me is that 
all three of us hated what Thorne did in Future State Green Lantern. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was, if not the worst, the second worst Future State title. For, second worst. You think the Flash was worse? I think so. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But but those are the two clear stinkers, right, in the, in, mm-hmm. in, in the batch. And so the fact that we are so high on this, I think, is is really good for two reasons. First of all, I think it shows that even though DC gave him, you know, the, the keys to the Green Lantern books, it looks like they maybe recognized the same thing we did, that that characterization wasn't working, and so allowed him to, I guess, I guess try again. But I think more than that, I'm I'm proud of us as readers for I don't want to say proud make it that makes me sound lame I don't want to say proud of us but I'm glad that we were able to read this removing the context of of future state here because I think that there's a there's a real risk a lot of times of us just holding on to our opinions of writers from the past like one of the things that I said about our show was that we were the first people to turn on Tom King uh, when <laughs> when the Rebirth Batman book started, like I think a lot of people held on to the the goodwill he had built up before then, and w- we were sort of like, no, this is bad, and we called him out for it. And I'm glad that we continue to be able to to admit we were wrong, or to just admit that you know, art that creators are not always one thing. That sometimes they can do an excellent book and a shitty book back to back, or but you know, I, I think it's important as as critical voices to be able to express that. Yeah, I, I too am proud of the pioneering that we do on this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I th- I think you're right, and I think it I think what helped give me that perspective was, and you'll remember this, I specifically said. When we talked about that, uh, the future state stuff, I specifically said, I'm not going to judge Thorne's green, upcoming Green Lantern run based on this. Because to me, it was not a failure of Thorne's writing necessarily, although, although invention of a concept is part of writing. So, you know, I, you, you can't let him completely off the hook. But it's just that the concept was so dead on arrival for me that, you know, whether he came up with the concept or you could hand any writer that concept. And I would probably not find it to be an interesting way to approach Green Lantern, you know? Yes. And so it would be really unfair to judge even the guy who came up with the concept if the next work he was going to do was going to be considerably different you know i would hate to judge the 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 future work based on this one thing that just in concept was never going to work for me right um if that makes any sense yeah absolutely absolutely well let's move over to suicide squad number two this is written by robbie thompson illustrated by eduardo pensica um so the team that we get in this issue is sort of a combination of the leftovers that weren't killed last week and a couple of new characters. We have Peacemaker, Talon, Connor Kent, 
Culabra, uh, Mind Warp, Nocturna, and Exit. And um, I think any Suicide Squad book right now is going to somewhat suffer from not being the Tom Taylor Suicide Squad book. Uh, but I'm interested to hear, Vincey, what you thought of this issue. Okay, so what everything that I just said about Green Lantern and how like DC's really packing more things into these books, um, I, I don't think that about this book. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think the Suicide Squad book, uh, out of all these, um, out of all these uh, infinite front, it takes me so long to remember what the status quo is called, <laughs> um, and to not to not call it Infinite Horizon, right? Um, uh, this is the one that most feels like a traditional new 52 or, or rebirth era of DC editorial where like, it seems to be telling a pretty decompressed story. Um, it's a little edge Lordy for my tastes. Um, it's trying a little too hard, I think to maybe line up with some things with some corporate synergy um specifically peace, peacemaker specifically peacemaker yes all that said i don't i don't dislike this it's just the most conventional of any of these books i think um i don't hate it i don't think it's bad i think there's a couple things that are bad about it like peacemaker is supposed to be over the top um, I don't really care for that. It he feels like a Wildstorm character, which is weird because he's a Charlton Comics character. Mm-hmm. Um, but he feel he feels like a he feels like he's come full circle to being a Wildstorm parody of an edgy DC hero, if that makes any sense. Sure. And I don't think that's necessarily that's not what I want to see. I don't think that that's the right arena for that character i don't know but um the other thing that i think is is kind of lame is the the talon who who uh motif where he he doesn't remember who he is so he keeps saying who who like an owl um it would have been all forgiven if they made some who's on first jokes in that like if yeah and then somebody said i don't know who's on third that i I, I'd, i'd forgive everything then Sure, or, or or like who's next? Like a like a like the who, right? Yeah, <laughs> the who sells out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If he starts singing Armenia, city in the sky. Sure. Yep. Okay. Yep. But but no, I'm that's those are just minor quibbles. I, I think this is okay. I like the collection of oddball characters like Mind Warp and Nocturna. Again, kind of like repeating what I said about the the stooge team from uh Tynion's Batman backup where they're they're clearly just guys that are meant to be exploited for death the red shirts <laughs> yeah the red shirts yep yep yeah I, I don't disagree with anything you said about this um i i will say that i'm i'm impressed and surprised at how tied into the other bat like this this is very much a bat book because of how it connects to the attack on arkham asylum and i feel like suicide squad is very typically a book that exists outside of 
main continuity until there's a crossover reason to bring somebody into it. But I feel like this is the most connected to sort of a DC status quo that Suicide Squad's been in a while. And I have I have no beef with that. I, I actually enjoy that. Um, I also like that they're going to be attempting to bring in uh, one of the characters from the Future State story with the uh, the, the Flash that has uh, pro- that has uh, prosthetic legs, and um, I, I forget the character's name. Do you remember the character's name? Is it just Flash? Bolt. Bolt. Thank you. Um, so I, I like that that character is going to be uh, brought in here, and it, it looks like they're also going to be doing some crossover work with Teen Titans Academy. And again, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy the interconnectedness of it. Uh, all I really want from my superhero comics are a shared universe. I, that's, I, just, I keep coming back to that. That's yeah. really all I ever want. And so giving me all this shared universe stuff is like catnip for me as a continuity for. So I appreciate that. But this is nothing super duper special. Um, you know, it's it's fine. But but to me, of all the books we talked about this week, aside from Crime Syndicate, which which also feels a bit like Infinite Frontier in name only, <clears throat> this is probably my least favorite of the of the books. Mm-hmm. Um, before we go to break, let's quickly talk about the Swamp Thing number two, written by Rom V, illustrated by Mike Perkins. Uh, I wrote about this for Multiversity last week for the Don't Miss This column. I am really enjoying what they're doing with Swamp Thing here. We talked about this a little bit on the top 10 last week, too. I had this higher than anyone else did. Um, I just think that this is the most unique Swamp Thing story we've seen in, gosh, years. Um, I don't think that that's overstating things. I think that that's fairly accurate. I also think Mike Perkins' art is working really well here. I really like his designs of Swamp Thing and the other characters. I I feel like his characters are... um, (coughs) Looser is the wrong way to put it. But, like, I I feel like the the Swamp Thing design is not as set in stone as, as it is elsewhere. In terms of, like, there are times when it looks like he's put together slightly differently because he's not a creature that walks around all the time as Swamp Thing. So when he forms, he kind of forms like for whatever is needed in the moment. Like there's times when it looks like he has a bigger head and jaw than he does elsewhere. And I don't think that's just Perkins being inconsistent. I think that there's this sort of concentrated effort to make him look different from sort of, a, you know, sequence to sequence. I yeah. just I think this is a really well done book. I think there's a lot of mystery here. It's only ten issues, which feels like the perfect amount of time for this story. And uh Rom V just continues to impress me as a DC writer. Uh what did you think of this? Yeah, I, I don't think my praise for it uh it will be as effusive as yours, and that was reflected in our rankings. But that doesn't mean it's not a very good book. Like I, I think I think it's so solid. I think what you say about the art is true. I think I didn't like Perkins on the Lois Lane book because that Lois Lane book was lots and lots and lots of kind of static characters talking to one another in the in the typically uh, 
kind of intriguing sort of sleazy cinematic dialogue that that uh greg greg Rucka likes to put into his sort of like crime espionage thing sure and i just don't think that suits mike perkins at all and um it's gonna sound like a backhanded compliment and maybe it is i you know sorry um but i just think he's so much more suited to drawing something like this where there is a little bit of talking um but the characters are intentionally supposed to be creepy a lot of the time and sinister and i feel like i feel like some of the art in the lois lane book was uncanny where it wasn't supposed to be or didn't fit same with the green lantern stuff here even the characters out in the desert that are humanoid or or literally humans they 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 kind of look a little uncanny or unsettling, and I think they're supposed to. You know, it very yes. much fits with the tone. Um, I think the story is very interesting, although it's 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 quite standalone. Which I'm for Swamp Thing, I'm fine with, except that there's like a shot where like you see that Batman has been observing this whole thing, <laughs> and yes. I almost wish that wasn't in here at all. As much as I like a shared universe and continuity, like I don't need Batman sticking his dick in another <laughs> yeah. another book around here. That felt very much like, I don't know if you remember when uh, I Vampire was a thing in the New 53. <laughs> there was yeah. like a Batman crossover in the first few issues. And I yep. remember feeling like, you know, I'm enjoying this book. I don't need to have more Batman in this title right now. Um, right. Right, but yeah, right. This, in a way, kind of does feel like the um, similar to the Crime Syndicate in that it's Infinite Frontier in name only. Like this feels like this could have come out at any time. That's not a knock on it. It just doesn't feel as connected to the rest of the books yet. Mm-hmm. Nor may it, it, fe- ever. it feels like it feels like a Sandman universe holdover almost. Oh, that's a good call. But it's not. It can't be. I don't think because Perkins. Uh, is very much working on it contemporaneously because, um, you know, Perkins has been doing work from Green Lantern to Lois Lane right up to this without much without much downtime. So, yeah, I really don't think it was supposed to be, but that is certainly what it feels like. Yes, I agree with that. All right, well, let's, let's take a break, and we're going to come back with the books from the 13th of April in the second half of our show. So stay tuned. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And we are back with the April 13th releases, starting with Batman the Detective, number one. Written by Tom King. Not Tom King, Tom Taylor. Got my Tom's mixed up there. We were talking <laughs> talking Rorschach in the break. Uh, written by Tom Taylor, illustrated by Andy Kubert. Um, when this was announced, I think we all pretty much called it Batman Europa 2. <laughs> and um, 
you know, I, I I don't think there was a ton in the sort of solicit to get me excited about this. And I have to say, there are a couple of things in this issue I really don't like. But overall, I think Tom Taylor is a good enough writer to make a lot of the dumber things work here. Um, I hated the new Gentleman Ghost look. Unnecessary, not explained, just really stupid. Uh, I didn't, I don't know exactly when this is set. Like, Batman definitely seems older here than he does in um, Infinite Frontier stuff. And I, I don't mean that as, like, a complaint of when does this take place? I don't understand. I just wish I had a little bit more context for enjoyment of the story itself as sort of when this takes place. Uh, he refers to himself as old a number of times here, and I feel like that's not where the modern Batman character is in terms of the way he talks about himself. Mm -hmm. um, what did you think of this issue? I wanted to like it a lot more than I did. I'll say that. Um, and I, I'm not just saying that because Tom Taylor's the writer. I, like As I was reading it, I actively wanted to like it more than I was liking it um, because it's got a lot of elements that I like. I, I love uh, Knight and Squire. I love the that they've continued the idea of legacy with them because mm -hmm. we saw the original Knight die s several years ago now. I can't remember in what context, but was it an issue of a Tomasi thing? That sounds right. I don't know if that 100% is, but that sounds right. Anyway, it was a few years back, and it's one of those things where, like, you could easily see a writer just going, uh, ah, Knight is back now, <laughs> right. and and not have to explain why, right? And they um, were all rescued by, let's say Mo. <laughs> let's say Mo. Exactly. That's what I. That's what my mind was searching for, and I, I couldn't couldn't mm -hmm. pull it. Um. So, so I like that. I love seeing Knight and Squire. I love the legacy idea here. I like the idea of a story about an older Batman. Um, that's that's uh, not in continuity, but but within the publishing, you know, not like a uh, black label or something. Sure, right. Sure. Um, but the, it didn't really deliver for me, like. I guess like Bruce came off as a big asshole in this. Like, I don't, I don't believe that he had a good reason for just leaving Gotham. You know, he's like, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back or, or whatever he says. He said, he hears about this plane crash in Europe and he says, I, I'm, I'm leaving Wayne Manor forever. <laughs> and it's like, why? And the, the premise is that like, he's done this for decades and nothing's gotten better, but I don't know that I feel like that's always a thing for other characters to say, not for, not for Bruce to say, you know, that's interesting. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, so I didn't care for that. I also didn't care for the gentleman ghost redesign. I think like the gentleman ghost is supposed to be a cheat. He's supposed to look like a Hanna-Barbera character. <laughs> He's supposed to look like Scoob, like a Scooby-Doo yes. uh, villain or something, you know? Um, so yeah, I thought that was unnecessary. I liked that Bruce had a, uh, a pair of gloves or gauntlets that, that 
Constantine gave him. Yes. Um, that was fun. Um, there, so there was some fun stuff in here, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful for the next issue. But despite the great writer and the solid, if unspectacular, art, um, it left me a little cold, I think. I would say I'm slightly higher on it than you are, but not not too much higher on it than you are. Um, I would say that Bruce is less of an asshole in this than maybe you're implying. I liked some of the stuff that he did, some of the moments he had with Knight and, and Squire. Um, there's one moment in particular where he, we actually see Batman smile. Uh, I'm I'm trying to pull up where it is. It was it was a scene. I it was when they were in the hospital. Mm. And that's true. Uh, yep. I re I really did enjoy that because I feel like that's something that Tom Taylor does that almost no one else does right now to give him just a little bit of a sense of humor. Um, so um, Knight asks, "Did you impress the hell out of her?" And he says, "I don't know what you're talking about." She says, "Oh come on!" And then he smiles and says, "I punched a ghost." <laughs> Like, yeah, that's great. Like that's that that's a really nice moment, and I feel like oh, you like you like that, but you don't like I bought the bank. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am confident in saying I like this, but I did not like I bought the bank. Um, that's fine. You know, I I think that this is more or less fine. I think that Andy Kubert probably. I mean, I'm gonna guess, and this is this is totally conjecture here that Andy Kubert wanted to draw an older, thicker Batman, and that's why this book is presented the way it is. Because there's really nothing about the way that Bat... Nothing about this story requires an older Batman. No. Right? So, other, other than the other than the leaving Gotham forever part. <laughs> right, but that, but that, you know, if when he and Taylor were talking about this, and he says, you know, I'd like to draw an older Batman, Taylor can say, you know, I can figure out how, how to do that. But there's nothing, yeah. like, inherent to me about this that feels necessary for that. Um, and, you know, be, because of the sort of general shape of Batman here, it's hard to not think of The Dark Knight Returns with how he's drawn. And Kubert, yep. Kubert did the Dark Knight three, right? Isn't he the artist on that? Um, supposedly, I liked that comic, but yes, you did. That's why I'm asking you because you're the biggest fan of it in the world. <laughs> yes, yes, he drew that one. Yeah, so yep. you know, so I feel like this this kind of fits into that. And unlike certain other writers this week, Taylor did not feel the need to put Frank Miller actually into this book. Um, <laughs> But there is there is certainly you know bits of Frank Miller in this, and I think that's okay. I I think that Tom Taylor is somebody who DC wants to keep happy right now, and I think that they have plans for him beyond sort of this current uh, publishing initiative. You know, right now Batman's not available. Right now Justice League's not available. Right now Superman's not available. So Tom Taylor is a Nightwing, which is not a slouch of a title, but it's not—it's not where a writer of his strength should probably be right now. So if the, if giving him this book with a with a superstar artist and letting him tell a fun-ish Batman story, if that keeps him around, I'm fine with this. This wasn't so offensively bad 
that I won't read further installments of this. Oh, it's not. Yeah, it's not bad at all. It just um, it left me colder than 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 Tom most Tom Taylor stuff does. Sure, that's all. That's fair. Nor- normally, I read his stuff, and it's just so warm and and inviting, and yeah, just I don't know. Didn't didn't connect with this one. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, and again, like I feel like one of the things we keep coming back to when talking about these books is that there's just even the books that aren't working for us are better than the sort of average book from a couple years ago. Absolutely, this is way better than whatever like random Batman uh, miniseries was happening in 2016. Yes. Yes, this is better than the Dark Knight Three. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I, I don't know about that. You, you know, you, you got to talk to yourself about that and figure out where, where you stand on that. But you know, uh, I could certainly see you having having a variety of opinions on this. Um, all right. Well, let's move over to Batman Urban Legends number two. Now, um, of the three of us, you were the most down on this first issue. And I'm going to guess, based on some pre-show chatter, that this is all that you're going to be the lowest uh, of the two of us on this issue. Um, I want to kind of do this in a different way this week. Instead of going through all four or five stories here, I want you to talk about your favorite story first, and then your least favorite story. So, which was your favorite of these? <sighs> My favorite, ugh, honestly, this week my favorite was the the uh, Chip Zdarsky Eddie Barrows cheer story. Okay, but that's not saying much because I still, I still didn't love it. I still don't love the, I still don't love the thematic focus of that story. But but I think out of all the stories in this title that one was the clearest like you look at it it's the highest quality production value i think it's the it's the one that is most trying to tell you a story versus just fill some comic book space um it's the least disposable one i think it's the it's the meatiest one you can you you can dig your teeth into it and like examine the themes a little I just don't like them, <laughs> but I think it's the highest quality story in here. What don't you like about this? I just, the, the, again, I feel like we did this already in that creeps, uh, three jokers story, um, that we, that we just read a few months ago or whenever that was uh, that you read a few months ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like I, I feel like we, we dealt with the theme of of Jason Todd's upbringing and his violent nature or whatever um, in that. And I think like maybe if this does it a little more, no, it's not even, no, it's not more subtle at all. Um, it's maybe more tasteful than the three jokers I'll say, but it's not more subtle. It's, it, it whacks you over the head with it. 
Um, and then with the kid pushing the drug dealer down the stairs to, to kill the drug dealer or whatever. The kid being Jason Todd? The, the, did, no, the kid. Didn't that, the kid push? That, no, that, 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 that's the flashback to Jason Todd. Oh, okay. I'm just I'm just forgetting what. What? Why? Why was? He... Never mind. Never mind. It does, it's fine. Um, yeah. I just I just think it smashes that over your head too much. Um, for my taste. That's okay. All. Okay. I I hear all of that. I would say this. I would say that typically Jason is given no character development whatsoever. And it's been a long time since we've had any Jason story that felt substantial. Even like the even the Red Hood and the Outlaws stuff for the very brief period that we didn't know Scott Lobdell was a creep and we thought he was doing good work. Like even that stuff <laughs> wasn't really about Jason. We were enjoying the stuff about Bizarro and about Artemis more than we were the Jason stuff. And so I feel like this is the first. And again, I did not read Three Jokers uh, for no good reason. I just I just read that first issue and thought I'm good. Um, but you know, th there's um, this is giving Jason something a little bit different to do. It's also giving. I, I think it's nice to show. I think showing this kid allows Jason to get. A little bit to have a little bit more um it just gives him some sympathy it gives it, it i don't know how else to say it it just it, it makes him a more sympathetic character i i like this story i understand why you don't like it i do but i i think it's working pretty well and i think it is so unlike anything i've ever read chip zadarsky right before i'm impressed with it just from that perspective um but I also think that this is I, so this is like a it, it's almost a full a full sized comic issue here, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's probably a bit too long if this was if this was actually this is this is twenty five pages or so uh, of story. So maybe cut out the covers and so maybe it's maybe it's about twenty pages. So it's, it's about a full length story here. I think it could be trimmed down a little bit from here, but I I have no I have no problem with this story. I like this a lot more than you do. Yeah, um, I'm looking at it now, and I'm I, yeah the structure of it. I I read this book like three weeks ago or something, and I couldn't remember. But yeah, you're right. the The flashback. Who did the art in that flashback? That's Marcus Toe, baby. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, hey, I li I like that. I like that yeah. art. Love me some Marcus Toe. And, and and Eddie Barrows is sort of doing his like screamiest, veiniest Batman here. Um, <laughs> But I yeah. do like Eddie Barrows. Are. I think this is a little over the top, but that's okay. Um, sure. I like the fact they're giving Jason something to do here. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, I think you know, it's it's clearly a high quality, high production value affair. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely a worthy centerpiece for this anthology. The, the it's just not to my taste, I sure. guess. And that's fair. That's totally fair. Um, what was your least favorite story in this issue? Ah, Grifter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which for all the reasons we've already talked about, um, 
so we don't really need to rehash it. I do want to mention the Cecil Castellucci, uh, Marguerite I, Savage. I was going to mention that if you didn't, so go ahead. Yeah, I I do think it, it wasn't great by any means, um, but I do I do love me some Savage art, and it was fun enough for being a very disposable kind of kind of one-off little story. Um, I got a kick out of the villain being named her, her real name was Vi Ross. Well, she's, she, she was like, a, she was around in the Castellucci run. Is that right? I don't, I don't remember I'm that. Almost at all. Po- I'm almost positive that, that this is a direct follow up to a story from the Castellucci run. It very well could be. <laughs> um, but I do, I, regardless if it is, I, um, completely forgot about that name then if it is um oh yeah you're right yeah november 2020 anyway that's a great batman pun name in the in the in the tradition of uh victor freeze and pamela isley yes (laughs) good Uh, stuff i i actually really enjoyed this story because i feel like first of all the savage art is just so good that I, i could watch her illustrate anything but I really mm-hmm. like this idea of establishing Oracle. Like this this issue, this story, sort of gives you a really clear idea of who Oracle is in Gotham right now. Like what Babs's whole deal is. And I like that. This looked beautiful. It was fun enough. I like a Babs story. I like an Oracle story. I thought this was fine. Yeah. Uh, the, the Outsider story was a bit of a bummer just because that Outsider's Future State story was so good. And this is just kind of boilerplate outsider stuff. Um, I had nothing really to say about it to you. No. Yeah. It's too bad because I, I, I would still be interested in an actual, uh, I don't know, mini series or, or full comic by Brandon Thomas, uh, regarding the outsiders, um, based on the strength of the, the future state stuff. But this just wasn't it chief. Yeah. Agreed. And grifter sucks. We've established that. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's move over to the Joker number two, written by James Tynan the fourth, illustrated by Guillaume March. This is the Gabagool, Vincy. <laughs> this is the Gabagool. This is I. Oh man. This is so good. This is so much better than it has any right to be. Yes, and it's and. I thought the first issue was good. Remember, we talked about it, and and I just said, you know, ah, I just I just don't know if I like Gordon as a main character. Focus. As good as that issue was, this issue is better. This issue is like firing on every cylinder. So uh, you go off first. Well, I I, I want to say a couple of things. I I really like Gordon improvising a bat signal. Like mm-hmm. to try and get Batman's attention is that this is a weak ass signal. I really enjoy him pulling out the trump card of knowing who Barbara is as Oracle. Like that, it 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 always has struck me as silly that there's supposed to be this brilliant detective who has no idea that his daughter is Batgirl. Like that just that just that strains credulity a little bit too much for me. Almost like how Lois Lane always figures out who Clark Kent is. It seems like Jim Gordon should have figured out who Barbara Gordon is. So 
I, I liked that. I also think it just it sets up a really interesting dynamic for the story going forward. And Gia March's art is so good in this. There are so many subtle things that happen in this. Whether it's, you know, having the Joker literally in the reflection of Gordon's glasses at different times, showing how, like, he gets into his head, or just how his Batman is, like, a full foot taller than Gordon, which is something we've <laughs> never really seen before, but uh -huh. works fine here. You know, we get that, that weird, like, uh, villainous hotel hotelier, essentially, who has, like, the missing eye, who the Joker is hanging out on his property. March's Joker is amazing and, like, unhinged and fun. Uh, everything about this issue really, really works for me. I love the different layers that everybody is sort of working on here. Everybody knows that they don't have all the information, but they're all kind of agreeing to uh, to sort of put up with the lack of information right now because they feel like the the stakes are high enough. We also see a bit more of the carryover from the attack on Arkham, which is, again, something that Tanya is just threading through all these issues and really sets them as a period of time in Gotham. And this also, like, we see the future of Bane in this issue. We also see the future of the Court of Owls in this issue. There's so much happening here. You talked in the first half of the show about the density of these issues. This is a really dense issue. And yet it doesn't feel overstuffed. It doesn't feel rushed. It just feels really substantial. It's so good go off yeah man it, it goes down so smooth like as, as stuffed as it is and as as much as there is going on and as much as the, as much uh stuff that there is to read and absorb it just goes so smooth it's like the smoothest script you could imagine for a book like this and um and every all every motive that's the other thing that's the other thing that this comic does so well that other comics kind of fudge or drop the ball on every motivation of all the different characters makes sense and like yeah it's a fantastical comic book but you can you can you can understand why gordon is doing what he's doing why babs is doing what she's doing and and why she's putting certain measures in place to prevent her father from doing one thing or another and just all these different characters and their motivations butting up against one another and kind of interlocking and it all just makes sense and the part that really came together for me is when the joker is on this like murderous uh rampage in belize that he gets caught for and you know, you think, okay, well, he's just the Joker. He's just being a, he's just being a, a he's being the Joker, baby, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, he had a reason the whole time. He created, it was to create this diversion so that, because he knew that people were breathing down on this hideout. So he created this diversion nearby that, that just looked like a random, you know, murder spree. And so really the whole time he's thinking clearly and he's thinking like several steps ahead. And that is a great joker because 
the Joker should be funny and madcap and uh, have the appearance of randomness, but I like a Joker where the the randomness is surface level, but really, obviously, he's doing something for self-preservation as well, you know? To me, that's a really well-written Joker. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can't... We keep slobbing on him, but man, Tynan is really just, he, he can do no wrong right now, basically. Yeah. He, he's, he's just doing, he's just doing the best. He's just doing the best work of his career. Yeah. Um, I will say my one knock on this issue is I felt that the punchline backup was not as good as it was last time. Yeah, I think I agree with that, although I, I, I thought it was harmless. I thought it was kind of fun to see like all these uh, old classmates of, of Punchline when she was just Alexis um, kind of commenting on on her newfound infamy or whatever. Um, but it was a very insubstantial backup for sure. Um, not a heck of a lot going on. Less... Uh, less Harper Rowe focus than I was expecting. Um, didn't didn't really move the football on that one. Um, yeah, you're right. But but overall, that's 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 a minor quibble. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is excellent. Keep it up, James. Keep mm-hmm. it up. Uh, that brings us to Superman number thirty, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, illustrated by Scott Godlewski. I want you to start talking about this one, Vincey. Go ahead. What do you think? Um. Oh boy. I. I continue to kind of struggle with this book, with this run. Um. God, I don't even know what to say. I I feel like. Johnson is setting up this um, the, these characters are not these are these are new characters right these are new the this aliens, is a new alien race I believe yeah. so yes yeah all of this is all of this is 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 new and I just feel like like now all of a sudden it's too close to the stuff that Bendis was trying to do when he was creating these like new alien races for, for Superman to butt up against. And, but then again, this is one that Superman has a supposed history with, even though we haven't seen it in the comics. Um, but I just could not connect with, with these characters. I couldn't, I couldn't, this is one where I couldn't wrap my head around anyone's motivations you know, and I, I think part of that is intentional. Like at the end, there's a twist where this like old uh, alien that Superman supposedly fought fought alongside decades ago, um, kind of turns on uh, turns on the the good guys basically, or what we think are the good guys. And to me, none of the motivations are clear, and it's just comes off as a very ordinary uh, Superman encounters this alien race that he doesn't entirely understand. 
And to me, it didn't really continue the themes that that Johnson was going for with he and John. I mean, it did a little bit. You see Superman is keeping a journal of his last days on Earth with his family. And supposedly John is reading it or something like that. But but that's that's kind of a framing device. That's not really the story here. Right. The story I just couldn't I just couldn't get into. I couldn't identify with these new with the new characters. So I'm sure that this is to set up what will eventually lead to like the war world stuff or to some other big grand story, but it feels very confused right now. Um I I, I overuse this Simpsons joke in this show, but that's okay. A lot of this red like don't do what Donnie don't does in just like they create this this character these characters that purposely speak language that is hard to understand and then try and throw you for a loop with what they're actually saying. And I just feel like for the purposes of this story that serves no purpose. I I don't feel like I gained anything from this story by having these like elusive aliens that aren't you're never quite sure they're telling you the truth or not, you know. There were some there were some decent attempts at humor here, I will say that. Like I, I thought that the um the aliens thinking that Clark and John are so ugly was was yeah. kind of fun. Like that's that's that was you know, funny. That that's a funny little moment there. But overall this just felt like I still don't know what this book is going for yet. And we're far enough along into the PKJ era. I know we're only a month and change in, but we've had now a bunch of the titles in Future State. We've now had two issues of Superman and an issue of Action Comics, and I still can't really tell you what's going on in these books yet. I know that they're setting some stuff up, and I'm attempting to be patient enough to enjoy that payoff whenever it comes. But it just seems to me like there's there's no reason to drag things out this much. If you want to introduce Superman into a new status quo, you don't need to you don't need to crawl up to that status quo. And this very much feels like it's going to be a two or three arc, two issue arc that will eventually lead somewhere else. But I can already tell that there's no reason to make this a three issue arc or, or however many issues it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I agree. I think like j- just when I was, just when I was ready to kind of relent and see where Johnson was taking the last arc, I feel like we got to this issue and now I don't know how we got to hear from there. You know? Yes. Um, and what I think what you said is really smart about, like, there's no reason to drag this out. I, I would take that even a little further and say, like, and I this is echoing something I've said about this very run before, but I don't think in, in comics in 2020, 2021, I, I don't think you can drag anything out anymore. I don't think you have the time to 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 set up stories this way you know 
if that's even what's happening, you know, I, I can't even guarantee that. Um, and it sucks because I do think Philip Kennedy Johnson's a talented writer because there, there are individual lines in this story and in the, the previous arc that I think are really great, that really hit home on a theme that, that he's trying to deliver to us. Um, it's just that I don't, I can't make heads or tails of why we're, why we're doing this in the plot, um, in relation to whatever overarching theme he's going for. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I, th I think that this, I, I do think that the war world stuff will be more interesting. Yes, that's, yes, take us there. <laughs> and so just, I don't understand why we didn't just go there right away. And I understand that, like, from, from a writer's perspective, he probably feels like, we can't just drop them into war world. We have to give them a reason for that. And I think more often than not, reasons are overrated mm -hmm. when it comes to comics. Right. There, there's no reason to not just drop us headfirst into this and let us figure out what's going on. But you know as well as I do that that stuff just uh, it just it tends it it tends to take too long to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I don't I don't know if there's necessarily room for that in 2021 in modern superhero comics. Yep. All right. Well, let's move on to our last book of the week, and that is Wonder Woman number 771, written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan, and illustrated by Travis Moore. So this, I, I was the lowest on this book of the three of us when we did our top ten episode. And... I continue to maintain one specific gripe with this book. And that is this. I, I have now read, you know, two issues of this. And I thought that both issues were good enough, were enjoyable issues for what they were. However, I still do not feel like this is a Diana story. And that's my biggest problem with it right now. Mm-hmm. Does that is that me just being difficult or do you do you see that as well? I think you're I think you're right. I just don't mind because I feel like um I feel like we just got well, just is a relative term. It was five it started five years ago. Um, but we got the, the Greg Rucka Diana story so recently um, that I, I, I think I'm, I'm up right now for just a fun swashbuckling type Wonder Woman adventure. This feels to me like, um, Wonder Woman, uh, Conan only, only actually better. Like I, I liked that miniseries well enough, but I was, I was kind of tongue in cheek about just how much I liked it to, to kind of, <laughs> befuddle you guys um but this is this is like that only better and i i like that flavor i like the sword and sorcery adventure um we need to we we seek the serpent's key type stuff 
I, I'm really digging that right now. I don't think you're wrong. I just think, well, it's kind of like the opposite of the the thing I said about Red Hood, where like, I think that's a, a high quality story that is just not to my tastes. And I think that this this Wonder Woman story just happens to be to my tastes at this particular time. Um, and it's not to yours. So, I mean, again, I don't think it's bad at all. I think it's a well written, well illustrated story. There's some fun stuff in here. It's just that there's very little that happens in this issue that I feel like. like if, if I picked this up and you scrubbed all mentions of Diana and Wonder Woman out of it, I don't know that I'd be able to tell you it's a Wonder Woman comic. Sure. I think the, the, the exception to that is the very smart placement of Dr. Psycho in this. I agree with that. I think the Dr. Psycho thing is the most interesting thing this book has going for it. Yeah. I think it's a, a really interesting use of the character. I think Diana using her lasso to figure out what he's doing there is interesting. Um, and I think I was kind of relieved to see that scene because I think that is your your window into it maybe folding kind of the, the the mystery surrounding where Diana is and 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 how you know what she's experiencing is maybe unfolding through that Dr. Psycho appearance um and it it, it teases that maybe there's something more going on here than we think and uh I like that a lot. I, I think you're right, Brian. Like, I, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. I think I think you're spot on. Um, I, I I don't think it's uniquely a Diana of Themyscira slash Wonder Woman story, um, with that exception. And again, I don't know if it needs to be. It's just not what I was hoping for, for especially because I feel like. The Diana status quo right now is so interesting mm-hmm. because she is, you know, somewhat outside of space and time and continuity. And I, I tend to dig those kind of stories, but I just don't there's nothing in this to me that connects her to her larger to the larger Diana DCU story. But yeah. I think I, I think if this was a miniseries called like, you know, Diana in Asgard, we'd all feel that this was a waste of time. <laughs> Versus because it's part of the ongoing, we're we're more willing to give it a shot. That's interesting. Um, but it's not bad. It isn't. Um, this is also backed up with a young Diana story. By Jordi Belair and Polina Gonchow. I think that this is my favorite part of this issue, only because I really like Gonchow's art. It's wonderful. And uh, I thought the story, I mean, there's nothing too special, but see, to me, what this gets right that the main story doesn't is we haven't gotten too many young Diana stories over the years. But this is so clearly Diana when you're reading this. Mm-hmm. And, and that that goes a long way for me. To just have it be, obviously, this is the Diana we know and love. Um, yes. And that's not to say, you know, I, I don't want to come off sounding like, 
there's only one type of Wonder Woman story you can do. I don't mean that. I just think that there are certain undeniable aspects of the Diana character that I don't necessarily see in the Conrad Clunan Moore story. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. What do you think of this backup? Um, I think it's charming as all hell. Um, you're right. Story wise, it's, it's, it's pretty thin. Um, Diana's just, uh, uh, basically getting kind of like a, uh, history lesson of, uh, Themyscira and questioning certain things. And I like I like that. Like, like you said, that's, that's, that's very good classic Diana kind of worldview. Um, so yeah, very charming, um, and I and I love the art. I also <laughs> I also had a joke about it. You know how like there's a bit in there where there's like an Aphrodite statue, and it's missing. There, it's all the other statues have like books in their palms, mm-hmm. and hers does not have a book. And for the longest time, the the Themyscirians, the Amazons, thought. Uh, Oh, it just is that uh, you know, she's more associated with love or whatever, and so the, the open hands represent uh, a, a welcoming or love or whatever they say, you know. And Diana's like, no, there's got to there's got to be a book somewhere, right? Yeah. It made me think. Have you ever seen? <laughs> this is going to be really obscure, except for people who are extremely online. Have you ever seen that meme where there's like? the busty traditionally uh traditional ideal of attractiveness like woman uh, walking and then she picks up a book and then she turns into this like brunette nerd <laughs> sure yes okay you, have you do you know the one i'm talking I about do, though yes. I, okay I, unfortunately i do yes <laughs> i thought i thought of that when they were like Aphrodite doesn't have a book. (laughs) (laughs) She's just the hot god or whatever. And then, like, if you put a book in her hand, she becomes the the brunette nerd. (laughs) I thought you were going to say that the open hands reminded you of the uh, statue from Arrested Development that Steve Holtz goes to. (laughs) No, but that's pretty good. But overall, I'm sorry, we did forget one thing from the Superman issue that I, I don't really want to talk too much about. But we oh, did forget the backup. The, the ambush bug backup. Um, it's not very good. No, it's not. Uh, but it does seem to set up future backups. Like, it seems like it's there. It seems like there's going to be a, a, a connective theme to these backups. And I'm not opposed to that. I'm just opposed to them being bad. <laughs> right, right. Well, because the first one was Bibbo. Right. And now it's Ambush Bug, but it's continue it's continuing the same story but through Ambush Bug's eyes. Um yeah, it's just that and I'm not an Ambush Bug fan to begin with, as you know. Um So crying one single tear falling down his face. I hope he is. Ugh. Ugh, that man. Um, yeah, it, the biggest crime of the ambush bug backup is that it's it's trying very hard to be funny and it's not. 
So I guess in that way, it's like a perfect Keith Giffen ambush bug <laughs> homage. Um, but not for me. I see what you did there. Yeah. All right, folks, that does it for another installment of the DC three cast. Thank you for listening. Zach, we hope you're doing well out there. Uh, can't wait to meet young Brian Vincent or whatever you end up naming your child. Vincent uh, Brian. There we go. That works too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you get to get in touch with us, uh, two thirds of us are on Twitter. Zach is at Wilker Fox. I am at Brian needs a nap. If you need to find Vince, Vince is currently, uh, on the DC, the slash DC comics, uh, R slash DC comics, the DC <sighs> comics subreddit, uh, posting all of his theories as to what other comic book writers Tom King is going to incorporate into Rorschach, uh, before the series is up. Um, he's currently pitching grant morrison as dr manhattan oh of course yes if that doesn't happen i'll be really disappointed um and keith giffen as moloch oh that's good <laughs> oh that's good um let's see j uh jm dimiteus as dollar bill <laughs> um let's see who would be um Oh, I feel like God. Giffen only knows creators from the late '80s, so uh, up until the late '80s. So like, um, Silk Spectre is Louise Simonson because that's the only woman who he knows who was writing comics of that era. Sure, sure. I don't know why, but I want to say Len Wein is a uh, Night Owl <laughs> for some reason. Sure, I mean you would think maybe Walt Simonson along with his wife. Yeah, yeah. But... You would think you would think that, but yeah. Anyway, now wait a minute. The, the 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 most important one is who's the freaking comedian? Oof. I mean it has to be Jurgens, right? <laughs> Jurgens is Jurgens is too mild mannered. Um it's gotta be some absolute psycho. Oh, um Oh, I can't even say nope. Nope. I, I can't. <laughs> Patreon subscribers at the ten dollars a month or more uh, level will get my my twisted answer for this. Starenko? Um, nope, nope. Worse than that, not gonna say it. We're just gonna sign off now. We'll see you next week. Take care, folks.